Hello and welcome to the Drug Science Podcast with me, David Nutt. Here we're bringing together experts and activists for a rational, honest and informed conversation about drugs. A Fascinate Productions podcast for drug science. Well, welcome back, everyone. So let me introduce our, our two speakers. Sam Gandhi. Hi, everybody. I'm Sam Gandhi. Um, my sort of background is ecology, uh, entomology. In more kind of recent times, I've kind of veered more into the psychedelic field. I have experience working as a scientific advisor for the director of the Beckley Foundation. Um, and more recently, I'm a collaborator with the Centre for Psychedelic Research at Imperial College. And my whole area of interest of research is the capacity of psychedelics to connect us to nature and the implications of that, which uh, we'll be going into, I think. Indeed, we will. And David Arizzo? Hi, I am uh, a psychiatrist, and uh, I was capping crew on some of the first, uh, in the first trial that Michelle was referring to, the first version of the psilocybin for depression. And I have been doing sort of brain imaging work in um, psychopharmacology in relation to trying to understand the biology behind addiction and depression, that kind of work for um, over 15 years, and, and while also training as a psychiatrist uh, here in the UK. So for the last 10 years, I've been at Imperial with David and Robin and all the others, Michelle uh, over the last years, and, and a great team there. And, and I'm doing different kind of trials, also non-psychedelic or semi-psychedelic. We are measuring the very psychedelic receptor, but we are actually using amphetamine in that trial in order to release some uh, transmitters to measure how that can inform us about uh, the biology behind depression and try to predict respond to treatment. So that kind of work I'm involved in. You might wonder why he's working with me. And that is because he did the first ever study showing that people who use lots of psychedelics have completely normal brains. And I thought, that's a good start. <laughs> but the people who used a lot of MDMA didn't. But anyway, that, that was... That. <laughs> So these two are here because uh, the, the theme for the second half of the podcast is around microdosing and the value of microdosing. And, and David, uh, although he's a kind of a, in one of his lives, he's a real scientist like me. He's also got very fascinated by microdosing and he's trying to turn it from a, an entertainment into a science, aren't you, David? Do you want to share with us how you're doing that and tell us what microdosing is and what the challenges are? Yeah, so actually I've been up very, very, very late last night in order to write a big grant application for a, a pretty um, ambitious microdosing research program. And uh, when, when you write that, you, you are referring to all the science and so on. And in this kind of proposal, I, I noticed that I was referring a lot to newspaper articles and um, almost Wikipedia. Uh, no, I didn't. But, but um, things that you normally don't really use as references as a scientist, because there is not that much. It is very anecdotal. There are books, there are podcasts, there are interviews, there are a lot of uh, amazing um, anecdotal reports on the effects of microdosing. But, but the science is pretty weak. There are some uh, trials that have come out in the last couple of years, typically with one-off doses, um, looking at yeah, dose-finding kind of things with different small doses of psychedelics. And 
Um, but but this sort of long-term repeated dosing over weeks has not been studied, and and one of the reasons is that it's uh, I can come back to that why why that is and why we have how we are trying to get around it by doing something we we find a bit smart. Well, I think you should. So let me just set a, bit, a little bit of the background. So microdosing is is there's no scientific definition, but it's by and large giving a dose which is kind of small enough to have an effect, but not big enough to to be very noticeable. So you're taking a small dose, usually a tenth of a dose of, of what you might normally take. Theory behind it is you'll, you'll make some approximation towards the big effects that we heard uh, from, from um, Matt earlier on. But you're, not tr- you're trying not necessarily to change your mind, but to facilitate your brain's working so that you can over time either feel better or more efficient or become more creative. And it's become quite a sort of fashion in some areas of, of work to, uh, to microdose psychedelics on a, you know, two or three times a week in order to improve creativity and uh, productivity. And I, I heard, you know, anecdotally, in the, in, in the newspapers, you know, it's 80% of people who work for, uh, who is it, uh, Google, I think, are using microdosing to try to work out better ways of taking money from us. So, you know, it's a, it, it's an in, it's a very interesting construct, and it's been around for a long time. Jim Fadiman has He's the great guru of microdosing. He's been promoting it as a, as a construct. He's written books on it. But researching it is very difficult, and I'll tell you why. So for two years, we've had permission from Imperial College to do a microdosing study with LSD. And the plan was to give 10 micrograms of LSD to people twice a week for six weeks and see how their mood changed, their brain changed, etc. And... Uh, in the end, we, we haven't done it yet because a microdose is treated by the law the same as a macrodose, which means if we're going to dose people with microdosing, they have to come into hospital, someone has to go to a safe, open it out, sign out the microdose, take it, sign it in, give it to the person. The person then has to stay in the hospital for t- eight hours, ten hours, till all the last drop of LSD has been peed out. And then they can go home. And they have to, to do that twice a week for six weeks means we've, we have to essentially pay for an enormous amount of rooms in order to do the study. So we've never actually been able to afford to do the study. So that's the, the paradox is that, uh, that microdosing isn't research because it's treated the same way as macrodosing, but you've got to do much more to get a research uh, data out. But David has come up with a very clever way of kind of avoiding that. And that's by basically tapping into what people are doing anyway and doing it and, and collecting data in a sort of semi-structured way. So, David, it's very clever. Tell them about this clever yeah, idea. I wish it was my idea. Actually, it's not my idea. It, it's a collaborator uh, who used to work at Mount Sinai in New York, who's now in uh, Hungary, called Bales Shigeti, who I've done some other work with. He's a great guy with a, a great brain. He gets really good ideas. And he... He came up with a, a model for how people could blind themselves using a manual that, that he created. We kind of created together. So we have implemented that into an online survey. So we do a lot of what you heard before about a lot of the science we do in the lab. We do very controlled trials with psilocybin for depression, for instance, and we do a lot of imaging trials. But we also actually run, conduct online surveys where we tap into the real-world use of psychedelics. And they're all prospective, which makes it a little bit better science than if you just 
ask people online how how have you found it to do psychedelics that's pretty weak science a little bit better if you at least do it prospective so you ask them a lot of things online they fill out tons of stuff before they start before they have their experience or their before they start microdosing and then you follow them around the experience or the, around the weeks where they microdose and then you also have some later outcomes so they 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 get reminders and they fill out stuff online however that is only semi good signs because first of all we we don't see them we don't have no control of what they're actually using we don't um we can't re- because we don't meet them we can't you know completely screen them it's a bit opportunistic naturalistic design where people just sign up if they consent online to this is by their own initiative and da 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 da, da. they sign up but still we obviously can't control it in a trial where we can blind stuff it's very difficult to blind people in a full dose psychedelics one of the advantages about microdosing is that because it's sort of perceptual dosing it's much easier to 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 control it to placebo control it it's very difficult to placebo control in full dose psychedelic studies because of the nature of the experience that you heard about in the first session microdosing has that advantage that we can blind it but how do we do that we could do a trial like david said before really difficult very expensive and also people are doing it they're most of the people microdosing are healthy people they're trying to stimulate their own uh, attention um their their sort of creative thinking um cognition in general memory uh, and and well-being and that means it's people who go to work get on with their life a lot of them are based in silicon valley or at google um or both um and um taking them into a lab taking them out of of their normal life and spend i don't know eight days in four weeks in a lab is is also massively interruptive for them and it's not what we're interested in we want to see what does it do in their life so therefore these surveys online that we are running on something called psychedelicsurvey.com i think they are great however what about the expectation effect what about if you really expect something to work even if it's prospective and we ask baseline questionnaires about everything and then they do whatever they do full dose ceremonial use of ayahuasca or microdosing for a period it could all be placebo it could all be that that uh, it's the expectation it particularly with something as mi- like microdosing where there's not much subjective experience it has everything ticked on the list of how it could have great placebo effect going on for for microdosing um so balash uh, then came up with this self-blinding manual so basically people who they consent to i'm going to microdose i'm planning it myself i'm going to use my own drug i agree that imperial is not telling me to microdose and so on and then they also consent to follow our manual and if they follow our manual they need to um, get some capsules some little plastic bags they need to print out a lot of labels and need to sit and spend an hour putting together the regime that they wish to go through so if they want to use whatever dose of the their whatever drug they want to use on whatever number of days in over the four week period they can they put together the regime as they they plan there are only very very few rules they need to always microdose on a thursday so people always microdose at least once a week so that's okay they just have to microdose on a thursday and they can never microdose on a sunday if they then put the microdoses into these capsules and we can we can both do it with dried plant based materials so magic mushroom material it can also be with blotters then the the manuals are different but then um they they put the into capsules and then they make sort of a mirrored version with placebo 
capsules. They end up in some small bags with some labels. They end up in some envelopes together with a QR code. And then there's an app on their phone so that they, in the end of each week, they, they are reminded of going in and filling out tons of stuff at baseline before they start and during the week uh, at, at these two days, Thursdays, Sundays. So they create eight envelopes. Each envelope is one week, but they only need to use the four of them. So they mix them in a very particular manner. So we know the likelihood of how many of the participants will actually then be microdosing for the four weeks and how many will be taken completely non-active placebo for the four weeks. And then some of them will, will, will be a mix based on this, if they follow this manual. And, um, and then they scan in on the Sundays the, the QR code, and then we have the information of what envelope they were using in the given week. So it, it is a pretty... I, I wish it was my idea, actually, because it's such a good idea. Um, and, um, and it works. Um, and, uh, so, and I wish I could tell you all the results, because this is then actually a, has the potential of being a, a big trial, because it's in the entire world who can participate so you can get hundreds of people in if they are geeky and nice enough to sit and and do all that work for us to to give us the data um but but people are uh, interested in it also because there's a little carrot um for for people that they can then get the results uh, and and they'll be told you were actually just taking placebo uh, mate uh, but, but, <laughs> <laughs> but And, um, and, and we have already had have, uh, some weird email correspondences with some of the participants who are like, okay, my life has changed, I've tried antidepressants, I've been doing this and that, my life is just amazing now after my microdosing, and we're like, oh, it's pl it was placebo, and they are like, no, 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 but they go and open the other four envelopes, and like, <laughs> yeah. So I, I don't know what to expect from the trial, we don't know, but we are really curious, and we are very soon going to... Um, look at all the data. We are waiting a, a month more, I think. It has been running since September 2018. And um, yeah, so, and, and then now I, I have reason, re I'm, I'm very quickly re received some governmental money in the UK to expand this trial so that we can do, um, so we can invite London area based people from the online trial who are self blinding. We can invite them into the lab and do a lot of things. We can put EEG on there and, and make EEG recordings, we can sample their drug because that's a, a Achilles heel scientifically. We don't know what they're actually doing, but that we can't do online. We tried to get ethics to approve it by saying they could send it by post to a lab in Switzerland with a code and then we would break it back to the email that they signed up to, but we would only... And, and ethics were like, we like, we like this, this is great, but we're never going to approve it because uh, you can't send with the email, uh, with a mail, um, you can't send an illegal drug, you're simply illegal. So obviously ethics can't approve us saying that. So now we can do that by, by this other way, we just need to have that approved, but we have the money for it now. And then we can examine people in the lab before and after they do their self-blinded microdosing. And we will also, if again, if we have enough money, give them finger rings and record their heart rate variability, as some a physiological measure related to stress, and, and also sleep quality and all that kind of stuff. So we can do a lot of extra interesting science on top of, of the pure hands-off, remote, online, self-blinding um, study. So that's what we are doing at the moment. Thank you, David. So when he does that study, Sam, what's he going to find? What impact does microdosing have? I, well, yeah, it's interesting what you're saying about the placebo reports back there. I think I'm a little 
I'm a little bit skeptical of microdosing uh, personally. Like, I think it's got its place in terms of being, being, I guess, a more kind of user-friendly way of interfacing with psychedelics. But, um, well, all of the deeper uh, shifts in perspective that can be of benefit to people with depression and uh, also healthy people, they're not really probably going to come about with microdosing. It's more of a, it's like a wholesome symptom treater rather than sort of going in deep and doing some some weeding. But I guess, you know, it's got its place in terms of making these things safely accessible. But overall, I think I'm slightly leaning towards the sceptical side. So Sam, the last time you and I were on a, a panel together, uh, sitting in between us was, I think, the lady that set up for the UK branch of Extinction Rebellion. And I was quite impressed the way she pointed out that her her insights into the uh, the problem uh, that we were facing had come from her taking psychedelics, and she was very committed to the idea that uh, psychedelics might, in this generation, save the world from climate change catastrophes in the same way as in the 1960s people thought they'd potentially save the world from atomic uh, wipeout yeah so obviously the environmental movement really blossomed in the 1960s and the evidence we've sort of got coming in now suggests that that wasn't a coincidence so there's there's a quite a strong body of correlative research um, and there's been a small prospective study that Robin did a few years ago what we know is that psychedelics have this capacity to increase nature relatedness or connection post experience and this isn't some fleeting thing Um, if you measure people's uh, nature relatedness or nature connection scores sort of a year after their dosing they they remain as high as immediately post the experience so there's a there's a deep perspective shift that is occurring there um, that really stays with people and this is really important for a few different reasons there's a substantial body of research literature to show that you're firstly so nature relatedness or nature connection is one's self-identification with nature the degree to which you identify with being part of nature which of course we all are the very fact that we've had to invent a scale to measure it is symptomatic of our disconnection from it we are all nature all the time so the more connected to nature you feel, uh, your anxiety levels are lower, you rate more highly for positive effect, for vitality, for life satisfaction and meaning, for happiness, you have enhanced psychological functioning at the state and trait level. So that's one thing. A never important part of nature relatedness or connection is that it acts as a mediator for the benefits one receives while actually spending time in nature and obviously there's a huge body of literature to show that being in nature is profoundly beneficial and restorative but being more connected to nature acts as a mediator particularly for positive effect and your emotional well-being and then lastly last but definitely not least Um, There's also a good body of literature to show that one's degree of nature connection is a strong predictor of one's pro-environmental awareness and behavior, if not the single strongest psychological predictor. And given that we're in a sixth mass extinction event and 
globally we face an ecological crisis, this is an interesting and, and relevant finding to all of us and the planet. David, are you measuring nature connectedness in your microdosing study? I think we are. Um, I mean, a lot of the stuff that we have been doing in, in these trials, we, as heard before, we do a lot of imaging, brain imaging, different kind of modalities, but but uh, we also use a lot of questionnaires. Then we try to relate some of the differences to what we see in the imaging data to try to understand these what happens better from a sort of biological point of view as well. And I actually would like to study some of those effects a bit more objectively. So tapping into the reward system and, and looking at if you actually expose people to cues related to different things, including nature as, as one paradigm, whether you actually can measure objectively in the brain that the brain's reward changes after the psychedelic experience. Um, so in, instead of just having a questionnaire saying uh, how, how, how much do you feel like hogging a tree right now on a scale from 1 to 10 kind of thing, which is great as well. And then that is kind of what we are doing. It's more sophisticated than that, but still. But I think we need to understand it better and to see whether there are actually changes in our learning and, and reward system that, that, that take place from these experiences. I want to just get back to you, Sam. Um, in, from a scientific perspective, I think David and I would say to you, well... Okay, so nature connectedness goes up after you take psychedelics, but doesn't all connectedness go up? Or do you think there's something special about nature? Yeah, no, it's an interesting... I've kind of described this recently, that psychedelics, they appear to be kind of agents of connection or connectedness on all levels. So on the level of the neuron, they increase synaptic and neurite formation. On the level of the brain, they increase global connectivity different parts of the brain all start linking up and talking they can facilitate increased in connection to one's core self uh, and to other people and then the world and cosmos uh, uh, at large so yeah they, they are seeming to affect or increase connection on a broad levels definitely just given my particular research background i'm particularly interested in the very macro overview but it is interesting the, 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 you want to know what a synapse is yes. these, these receptors the 5HC2A receptors that psychedelics work on seem to be very very important in allowing the generation of new thinking processes they seem to they have, have a peculiarly and, and as yet not well understood role in mental flexibility and there's been a big debate ever since we discovered these receptors as to why they're there because there's a lot of them and they're not probably not activated very often but when they are activated they produce fundamental changes in thinking like changes in depression like changes in attitude and that's why microdosing might work because it, it, it gently tickling up these receptors just freeing them up allowing them to be a little bit active over a long period of time could in the end produce the same kind of changes as a big sudden splurge that you get with a macrodose would you agree yeah and and i would uh, add add to that that when we talk about these yeah 5hd serotonin 2a receptors and we speak about microdosing. So these drugs, all the serotonergic psychedelics, the classic psychedelics, LSD, DMT, psilocybin, mescaline, they, they, they stimulate that receptor in particular. If you block that, you take away 
the psychedelic experience, you also take away the mood-improving effects of the psychedelics. But recently, the Copenhagen group, who also now does psychedelic research, where I'm originally from, they they have measured that to give more you know, power to the uh, importance of the 2A receptor, um, that the more the psychedelics, in this case with psilocybin, the more it occupies, sits on the 2A receptor, the more intense is the uh, drug effect, the feeling of this, that psilocybin is giving. What, and what was quite interesting from those data, if you look at their, their graphs and if you sort of go back to low doses, which is micro, psychedelic microdoses range, they actually still have a proper pharmacological effect. So they actually still sit on a significant amount of the receptors. Uh, around 30% of the receptors are occupied by psilocybin in the range that people use to microdose. And when we in pharmacology speak about microdosing, pharmacological microdoses, because it's the term microdose is not particularly related to psychedelics. It's, it's, a, it's a term in pharmacology, and normally that refers back to around 1% of receptor occupancy. So uh, so basically, uh, psychedelic microdosing is not pharmacological microdosing. It's ph- pharmacological mini-dosing, maybe. Um, so you, you might still have a proper pharmacological effect, some, some degree of a pharmacological effect of those doses that people use to microdose with, which is 5 to 10% typically of full doses. That's a very important discovery. And that's very new. I mean, it's only been published in the last year, I think, isn't it? Yeah. That gives me a lot more confidence that microdosing, as we are talking about it generally, is less likely just to be placebo because clearly the doses people are taking will have a pharmacological effect on areas of the brain where there's a lot of these receptors. But then the the million-dollar question is a a bit... So what kind of model is it then? I mean, what is microdosing? A psychedelic full-dose experience, like we heard in the first session, represents a completely different paradigm, as David was also saying, to normal pharmacology, to normal... You know, if you should compare it to anything, it's a deep meditation or maybe even ECT treatment. It's like really a a, a brutal, um, profound experience-induced change. So if you have subperceptual repeated dose taking of psychedelics, what is that? It sort of it ends up lying a bit between normal pharmacology, normal way of using medication to do something to your brain system on a re- repeatedly and then the psychedelic because they are psychedelics and and when we say that they're subperceptual, we are mainly talking about that you don't see maybe a puma or you, you don't become it's it but but some of the other things related to the psychological peak experience which has to do with s- deeply profound sense of meaningless uh, uh, meaningfulness not meaningless meaningfulness insightfulness sense of awe maybe microdoses actually have some of those elements on a lower scale as a full dose but you don't have all the very visual stuff so it might be that there's some degree of psychedelic experience in a microdose and then it still has some pharmacology going on so it sort of puts itself as a paradigm between normal pharmacology and and full-dose psychedelic therapy, as I see it. Yeah, just a bit more in defense of macro doses. Um, and yeah, I, I, I definitely see what you're, you're getting at here. It's kind of a different thing. We know from all the, the modern research that's been done with psychedelics that in terms of the deep sort of transformative, long-lasting effects that, that people experience. And that can be 
clinical uh, populations, so people with depression, addiction, existential anxiety, but also healthy normals as well. It's it's all about the the mystical peak type experiences people. Um, experience under these high doses of psychedelic and they're highly correlated with experiences of ego uh, dissolution and um, maybe that's a separate side branch of a conversation but the ego dissolution experience seems also tied to this increase in nature connection that people experience so that's something really important to bear in mind and you're never going to get that I don't think with, with microdosing yeah I think you might be right so what's Extinction Rebellion saying to all its members then? Is it, uh, should everyone microdose? But don't pick too many mushrooms, so there's some left, yes. <laughs> don't squeeze too many toads. No, don't take the toad. Leave the toad alone. <laughs> Leave the toad. Just take the mushrooms. <laughs> so, well, yeah, I don't know. There was a, there was a thing a sort of... A uh, little while back that I think uh, some people in Extinction Rebellion were calling on for mass psychedelic dosing as a form of sort of public protest. And I was sort of politely outspoken that I didn't think that was a good idea because it's it kind of felt suspiciously like the 60s repeating itself. And it kind of... But that went in a certain direction. It's like, let's not repeat the same mistakes we've already made going forward. That I don't think that's the right way of going about things. It's going to alienate people. And when like the medical model is, is continuing to advance, decriminalization movements now are starting to sort of like flower in different parts of the, the world, well, the states in particular, like doing stuff like this, I think could potentially or likely do more harm than good. Yeah, I certainly would agree with that. No. And actually, I'm not convinced that psychedelics might help everyone. It might take some very entrenched people and make them even more entrenched. Yeah. People often say to me, well, would psilocybin cure Trump? And, um, <laughs> and I say, there's probably no for two reasons. One is you've got to have a brain, and the second, <laughs> the second is you've got to want to change. Mostly, and the experience we have, from the, again, from the 50s and 60s is it giving people psychedelics against their will, particularly if they're chained to a bed, is not very therapeutic. And, that's how, and, and that was, those experiments were done deliberately to show that these drugs didn't work. Yeah, we need to remember that, you know, if you're going to define psychedelics simply and, and scientifically, it would be that they're, they're non-specific psychic amplifiers. So the context, the setting, the set, the intent, very much kind of roughly aim it in some way i don't know if aim's a bit of a crude word but that will magnify radically the the effect and potential benefit or not uh people will gain from those experiences and and, and i i think this we can maybe uh, relate back to what was um discussed a bit in the first session as well when there was one question about the what is the context and what is the the action of the actual drugs and And, and one of the issues is if you take the context away and sort of just give the drug without any context, with any safe environment, with any sort of care taken into account with regard to the sort of safe environment by the people around the preparation and and the actual space you're in um, and the music who sort of that, that ground you and, and frame the experience and, and also amplifies it. If you take all that away, which was done in the in the 50s, 60s, and actually in the country I'm from, in Denmark, 
we had a massive LSD scandal in the 80s. There was an LSD law where people who had been given psychedelic therapy 20 years before in Denmark, they could all have free process to seek compensations if they had a psychiatric report saying that it had did done them harm. And one specific hospital in Copenhagen, they had done those experiments that we are now saying we shouldn't do, which is exactly take away the context. And it was it's a very logical thing to do. It was happening at the same time where the randomized double-blinded model became gold standard. That was in 62, as far as I know. And that was the same time as psychedelic science was happening. And then, of course, you're like, okay, now gold standard way of conducting science is to do it in this very rigid, uh, rigorous, meaningful way. But with psychedelics, that's tricky because if you want to do that and you take everything away, it becomes unsafe because it's so dependent on the context and on the safety of the environment. So therefore, that question opens up to the logical conclusion scientifically to say, yes, let's take the context away, but you can't. So you, instead you need to replace the drug with some, something else. Um, or you can look at microdosing. Because for microdosing, the, the context is not as important. People take it, go to work, you know. And, and that makes it easier to study in a much easier way scientifically. Okay, David, do you have some questions? Okay, so thanks very much indeed for keeping your questions coming. You can keep doing it. Ask David anything. Um, question first uh, for David, David Arizzo. Um How would you differentiate microdosing and homeopathy in the scientific community? Um, as far as I know, homeopathy is a very diluted, 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 diluted version of something, right? <laughs> Isn't it? That is so diluted that there's kind of nothing left. So pharmacologically, that would be... a placebo sort of story unless it can relieve traces in the water and that is not my scientific field to to comment on that is not what we are doing we are doing more normal pharmacology and and uh, a psychedelic in a low dose is still pharmacology and as i just said before maybe before the person wrote the question we can see that those doses actually have proper occupancy on the 5h2a receptor which we know is important for the effects of psychedelics thanks very much indeed and um Question from Flo here, I think for you, Sam. Um, have you got a hypothesis of the physiological reason why psychedelics might connect us to nature? So, yeah, from, from the research that's been done so far, a few studies, the same thing keeps cropping up as a, a strong predictor of this nature, increased nature connection, and it's the experience of ego dissolution. Uh, so when we're... Yeah, when we have a, a high dose of a psychedelic, uh, the uh, default mode network of the brain, which is thought to be a fundamental kind of neural component of the ego, our self-referential subjective sense of, of self-identity, uh, that begins to dissolve and break down. And when that happens, perceived boundaries between self and other break down and dissolve. So there's this sense of um, expansion and we become we feel like we become part um, and unified with the greater whole and we need to remember you know like I mean the Buddhist view the ego is an illusion and biologically it is in a sense an illusion as an extremely amazing sophisticated con conjuring illusion like concocted by by the brain like of course we're not separate from nature and the universe like we are nature and the universe experiencing itself but evolution has give, given us these egos so we can live out our lives as independent entities um 
but but we're not we're we're part of the whole all the time we just maybe forget that sometimes actually just to say a few words about uh, end of life and the utility of psychedelics the end of life so there have been a couple of studies that have uh, specifically targeted people who've got uh, terminal diagnoses end of life diagnoses and and they've definitely found beneficial effect of psilocybin and before it was banned there was quite a bit of research looking at LSD and its utility and help people come to terms with dying and of course it's very much what you say you know it's actually making people realize that you don't ever die you just your atoms take a slightly different shape but they're still there I've been there since the big bang and they're probably going to be here for a few more billion years it's just they're reforming and, and people seem to, that seems to give people a lot of confidence that they're not really, they're just morphing into a different state rather than actually dying and disappearing. So S&D has asked, um, I've read in the latest study results that there may be increased rumination caused from microdosing. It doesn't state if this is negative daydreaming or being lost in thought. Could you comment on this? Yes, yeah, so actually there are some, some, some results from some microdosing work there's one study showing that neuroticism goes up in people who have LSD microdose, which is really quite interesting and um, very opposite of what we see with the full doses. So neuroticism is a vulnerability trait uh, predictor, a marker for, for affective disorders like depression, anxiety. Um, so the more neurotic you are, the more likely you are to develop um, those conditions. It's, it's a trait related to those states. And and that actually is increasing in, in one of the studies with um LSD, that's not the same as rumination. And one thing about rumination, just because Sam mentioned that all connectivity in the brain goes uh, up, which is actually not the case. It is when we look at the different brain networks, functional networks with MRI, the connectivity between these different networks that are normally separated, they, that connectivity between the networks goes up so they sort of fuse into each other, which might explain some of this sense of unity and ego dissolution. But within the default mode network, some of the within network connectivity between the different areas, including some medial prefrontal regions and a, a region called dorsal cingulate, which is very important for sense of self, those two areas are over-connected in depression and they are directly correlating with rumination. And what we see in the acute psychedelic state is that the connectivity between those two regions goes down. So we see the opposite of rumination with full dose also related to connectivity. So a question from Joe. Can we ever fully understand the benefits and or negatives of psychedelics if they are such subjective experiences? And how does drug research fit in with positivism? Fully understand is quite a big ask. But, I, but one thing we have done in the last 15 years is give what you might call a neuroscientific rationale or underpinning to the experiences and, and that's, a, that's a major advance and it's a, not just a major advance because it's, uh, it's helped us direct our research. We would not have done the depression trial if we hadn't done the neuroscience but it's also really important because it stops people who don't want this research being done saying it's just smoke and mirrors, it's just subjective, it's just lies. And when we can show a brain substrate, we can really, you know, we, we can get cut through all that crap and we can really focus on what really is important is that relationship between the subjective and the objective measures in the brain. 
Um, yeah, just to just to add to that, I think it's um, we absolutely need the you know the brain imaging to build up a picture of of what's going on in there under the influence of these things. But um, yeah, I see it as like one half of the coin, and I know some scientists might take issue with qualitative research, consider it a little bit kind of shallow, but it can be very powerful, particularly when it's linked to the brain imaging um, as part of. Ros Watts's research with psilocybin and depression at Imperial, she she found that disconnection, like feelings of disconnection in a broad sense, were like very much underpinning people's feelings of depression. And as a result of psilocybin therapy, people were feeling reconnected to themselves, to other people, to the world at large and, and nature. And you you really wouldn't like be able to to sort of pick apart that and sort of find those details uh, without asking people and without getting them to sort of rate their feelings on, on qualitative scales. So it can be a very powerful uh, approach in its own right, particularly in combination with the brain imaging. Yeah, I have to say, so uh, uh, Sam was referring to a paper uh, that Ros and a few of us wrote in the Journal of Humanistic Psychology. Now, in all my years, 40 years in science, I didn't even know such a journal existed. But now I've published in it, and it's one of the most beautiful things I've ever published. It's one of the most brilliant papers I've ever been part of. And it's completely about, derived from narratives, personal narratives of the people who've been through our study. And it's an amazing piece of work. You should all read it. So a question that goes back to probably the first session, actually, but it's an interesting question that's come through. And it says, um, the FDA in America has approved ketamine for treatment of depression. Does this work in the same way as psilocybin? Uh, so the European Medicines Agency have also approved it. It's called, the drug's called S-ketamine. It's a, uh, one of the isomers of ketamine. Uh, so it's pharmacologically very different from psychedelics because it's a glutamate receptor antagonist whereas psychedelics are serotonin-2 receptor agonists. But it produces, and it's an anaesthetic, uh, and that's, it's developed from ketamine, the anaesthetic, which has been around for a very long time. And it does lift depression quickly, within a day, like psilocybin. Uh, a ketamine, or an S-ketamine trip, will produce uh, an improvement in mood. The difference between ketamine and psilocybin in terms of mood is that the ketamine effect wears off over about two or three days. So, so this new treatment, S-ketamine, is licensed for twice weekly administration in people who have not made a full response to an antidepressant like an SSRI. And that's quite different from psilocybin. With psilocybin, we have to get them off other medication because that gets in the way of the effect. So this is an augmenting treatment uh, rather than a sort of curative or, 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 or uh, a standalone treatment like psilocybin. So that's another difference. But the, the other question is, does it do the same thing in the brain? And the answer is it might do. Ketamine disrupts brain circuits in a similar way to psilocybin. And that then raises a really interesting question. Well, why? It's not just disrupting brain circuits, which keeps you well, because the ketamine effect is short-lasting. And that, that, I think, gives me more uh, support for the idea that what, what psilocybin and this, the 5-HT drugs do is they change the way the brain works. The brain changes in a useful, meaningful way. That, whereas ketamine kind of gets rid of your depression is if you're drunk for a couple of days. 
but it's still there. Whereas psychedelics get rid of it, but allow your brain to reset in a better way so it doesn't come back so fast. Would you agree with that, David? Y- yes, yes, and, and maybe no. Because I, I think the experiences are, are, are different when you ask people, and the, the, the drug experience is very different. I mean, ketamine is more dissociative. It doesn't produce the same experiences. However, I also think it's important to keep in mind that ketamine comes from medicine. It's a medicine. It's used in anesthesiology. It's used when you, you know, break your legs on a ski holiday or if you're in war. And that means the people who have sort of used that drug, that ketamine in medicine, they, they are anesthesiologists, and they would not conduct a trial like the one with Michelle in a beautiful uh, room with all the, the context, the setting. They would not prepare the people in the same way as we would in a psychedelic. Uh, so actually, I think that you know it, it has to be done a trial, one-to-one, where ketamine is com- used in the same way as if it was a psychedelic to actually answer that question. Because, hey, you never know, maybe suddenly it will last two months. I, I'm, now I'm being controversial, but uh, it has to be tested. So I think we've got time for two more quick questions. And then the, the first of those two is uh, uh, crypto coconuts once again uh, at the back of the room there. Uh, is there a risk that microdosing might lead to psychological dependency? That's the wonder of these drugs. They don't cause dependency. In fact, they're anti-dependence. And one of the, the big battles we have to fight is that the FDA and the DEA and the Home Office all say psychedelics are addictive, but they are not. And they don't cause dependence for reasons which are quite technical, but they're anti-dependent. And I, I think it's pretty unlikely. I mean, we couldn't say for certain, but it's pretty unlikely that microdosing would cause dependency, particularly if you're only doing it twice a week. So, sorry, can I... One, because another... another that, well, that would be one concern, and I would totally agree with David, but I think it's, it's worth here mentioning that that there are other potential concerns. There are things that has to be looked into in preclinical models. And one of the things uh, that psychedelics... One thing is they work on the 2A receptor that we have talked about. There's also... There are 14 different serotonin receptors. One of them is called 2B. 2B also sits in the heart and on the heart valves. And other drugs in the past that have been stimulating the 2B receptor have caused thickening fibrosis on the heart valves. And and repeated dosing with a psychedelic, because a, a drug like psilocybin has also quite a high f- affinity for the 2B receptor. So one thing is taking one-off dose of psilocybin, but another thing is taking it all the time. Um, so if you take microdose for years, every two days or something, could that have an impact on the heart? Um, that needs to be tested in, in animal models. So I think that's actually probably more of a... Con- I wouldn't say it's a concern concern, because, but it, it needs to be tested. And the last question, which is, who should we vote for if we want to see psychedelics taken forward? David Nott. <laughs> we don't have a presidential system here, unfortunately. <laughs> you, vote, you vote Lib Dem. Lib Dems, in their manifesto, they will make cannabis legal, recreational. And they will do a full uh, re-evaluation of the drug laws. And there's a, even a chance they might have me on that. So definitely vote Live Dem, please. Thank you. <laughs> so thanks very much. I just want to say a couple of things uh, before, we, before we do finish the evening. Uh, so as you know, this was a uh, recording, a podcast recording. 
we've been able to do these podcasts because we've had a, a fantastic partnership with the guys who's helped us to produce it. And I really want to recognize the input that they've made uh, so far. They're a company called Fascinate Productions. Uh, and Sam and Rich are both here. I can see, I can see Sam over there. And I can see, where's Rich? There he is right there. These guys have done a fantastic job. And uh, I ask you to give a round of applause to them. So the last thing to say is just to ask you to say a thank you one more time to all of our guests tonight. And uh, it's been a great evening. I hope you've enjoyed it. And please, uh, please really show your appreciation to them right now. So thanks to everyone that tuned in, subscribed, left a review, or came to see us at the live show. That was the end of season one, but season two is on its way. It's in a slightly different format, and it'll be out in the new year. If you don't want to wait until then, you can hear David Badcock, the CEO of Drug Science, speaking with me, Sam Brown, on my podcast, Fascinate Pod. Stay in touch via Twitter on at Drug Science. See you for season two.